So those of you guys that are visiting today, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are finishing up our series called The Church That Puts God First. Now, this year's theme is God First. So every one of our series is structured in such a way that we talk about putting God first. I believe that if God is not first, he's not there at all. God values himself uh, far too much to play second fiddle to anything. If he's not first, he's not there at all. So we are in in a series about how we put God first as a church. And we're finishing up today with a courageous church. The main thing today is this. We will go where angels love to tread. The dangerous places are where the gospel is most needed. So here's a question. What does it mean to have courage? That's a, that's a definite, definite uh, question that we all need to have the answer to. Well, I'm going to hopefully explain that to you over the next 30 minutes or so about what it means to have courage. In order to be courageous, there must be a platform, there must be a foundation that you plant your feet on to launch that courage. You cannot stand courageously unless you have your feet under you. Now, early on when I was called to ministry, I was, I was part of an, another denomination, and I was very discouraged because it seemed like this denomination, all they did was argue with each other. They couldn't decide who they were, what they believed. Uh, they, they, they were factions that, did, that believed this about the gospel and believed this about the gospel, and basically the ministers spent all their time in meetings with other ministers trying to decide what the church believed. And there were no wins for the kingdom, no victories. Um, they, they did nothing but try to correct other people in their denomination. So I needed, as a young minister, that was discouraged to me. I needed to find a church that knew what it believed, knew what it stood for, and therefore could launch out and make wins for the kingdom. And I wanted to go where people had made their minds up, who knew what they were, and act on it. And so for us to be courageous, we must have our platform under us. We have to know what we believe. And I call these the inward qualities of a courageous church. What are the inward qualities that form the platform for the outward courage? Well, the first one is this. Number one, the inward qualities of a courageous church. Number one is passion about truth. Jesus gave us a, uh, a, a strong statement in Mark 12, uh, 30 through 31. He said, I'm going to sum up the whole Bible in two sentences. This is going to sum up the law and the prophets, two statements. He says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. All right? Now, the definition of truth is this. It's that which corresponds to reality. That is the definition of truth. I know this is going to probably shock some of you, but I am a man. Okay? Yeah. My wife. Yeah. And so how do I know that I'm a man? Well, I have an XY genotype in all 75 trillion of my cells. Um, I have male physical structures. I have characteristics of a man. I'm bullheaded. I'm stubborn. I don't listen to it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, no, uh, but the definition of a man is an adult human male, and that is what I am. I am an adult human male. The statement, Dave Kibler is a man, corresponds to reality, okay? Now, that is a true statement. Now, if I was to stand here and tell you that I'm a woman, that would be a false statement. It does not correspond to reality. I can't believe that we have to make these statements, but that is, that, that, that is the truth. Uh, it, Kentucky was the 15th state admitted into the United States of America. That is a true statement. That corresponds to reality. Catalyst Christian Church is located at 101 North 1st Street. That is a true statement. Kentucky weather is psychotic and needs to be institutionalized. That is an opinion, but I could probably make a pretty good case for it, okay? Now, 
All those statements are true because they correspond to reality. And the truth of the matter is this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born of a virgin, went willingly to the cross, died for our sins, was resurrected on the third day, and although those who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is true. That statement corresponds to reality. And a matter of fact, Jesus made it very clear that the truth was why he came here. When he was uh, in, in front of Pontius Pilate, and, and being quizzed, being, being interrogated in John 18, 37, Jesus said this, In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So everyone on the side of that which corresponds to reality listens to Jesus. That's what the Son of God is telling us. Pilate responded, what is truth? And he walked away, didn't let Jesus answer. See, the truth was no more popular in Jesus' day than it is today. The quickest way... To sap courage from a person, a church, an organization, a family, is to get it to doubt truth. That is the quickest way to sap reality. Uh, without commitment to truth, there's really nothing worth fighting for. There's nothing worth risking for. You don't need courage if you don't believe in truth. One of the most uh, heroic acts of courage I've ever seen took place over in our, our, um, our, our ministry over in India. In 2015, when I was teaching the ACPM pastors, or the church planners, uh, we commissioned pastors to go out and plant churches in these hostile tribal areas. Well, in 2017, about a month before our trip there in 2017, we got the devastating news that one of our pastors had been killed by the tribal chieftain right in the middle of church, walked in uh, with, a, with an axe, tribal chieftain, and, and killed the pastor right as he was preaching. And we were there about a month later, and we were, we were in mourning that this was what one of our brothers had fallen. And uh, in 2017, after the ACPM conference, our director, Ravi, came up to me with a young man about 20 years old, and the young man said, I've... I will go and continue the work. I will go there to where the pastor was killed, and I will continue the work. I don't know if I'm coming back, but that's where I'm going. Why did he do that? What motivated this courage? Well, his commitment to the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he desires all people to be saved. If he didn't believe that, he wouldn't have gone. So if he didn't believe the truth of the gospel, there would be no incentive to go to the dangerous places. And if we as a church are not passionate about truth, we will never demonstrate any courage at all. I will say this, your level of courage will match your level of passion for truth. If you have nothing worth standing on, you have nothing worth fighting for, nothing worth risking for, nothing worth dying for, if you are not committed to the truth. So the first inward quality of a courageous church is we must be passionate about truth, must know what we believe, and be willing to live, live and die for it. The second thing is this. We have to be absolutely committed to a very few things. Absolutely committed to a very few things. Uh, you do not need to know a great many things to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You simply need to know a few things and be totally, 100% committed to them. Our church doesn't have a long list of requirements and expectations. We don't. Uh, we believe in winning the lost and discipling the saved. That's it. But a catalyst, we're committed to two you know, uh, unquestioning things. And we build our entire church on it. Number one, we believe in allowing the Holy Spirit to, dem to, to uh, demonstrate what's called the fruit of the Spirit through us. That every person at Catalyst, we would love to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentle self-control, growing in greater and greater and greater uh, uh, ways in your life. That is a mark of a life that is under the control of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that we want is found in, in Matthew 28, 18-20, we're to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything we commanded. We want you to demonstrate through the Spirit. We want you to make disciples. That's, what we, that's, that's all we are. That's what we're committed to doing, right? We believe that going into all the world, starting with Central Kentucky, making disciples, baptizing the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is what we're supposed to be doing, right? And we believe that lives are in the control of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the work will result in those nine things known as the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we're absolutely committed to. See, far too often churches and Christians get bogged down in all these other things, trying to commit to too many things. Paralysis by analysis is what it's called. We would rather do less, a few things with excellence than do lots of things with mediocrity. That's why we have one concept per week. We have one concept, the main thing. That's it. That's all we talk about. That's what the main thing is. We want our people in our church building to focus on one thing, learn it thoroughly, and be equipped for it. When I was 25 years old, uh, I graduated seminary, and I was about to take my first full-time ministry at a church plant down in Alabama. All right? Now, 1999, that was the year 1999. That was a big year of change for me. First, I, was, I became a first-time father in April, and I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I had this, this little baby that I had, and I'd never been a father before. Um, Rachel and I had been married less than three years, and we had no idea what we were doing. She was trying to figure out marriage. Uh, I was going to full-time ministry. I had no idea what I was going to I've never served in ministry before. You know, I going to help start a church that didn't exist. And so I had no predecessor to follow. It was all up in the air. And there's a lot of stressing because I was focused on what I didn't know. And I expressed that concern to a professor of mine, Dr. Bob Tuttle. And I said, I have no idea what I'm doing. And he said this. He said this. He says, you know how to preach the gospel, don't you? And I said, yeah. He goes, you know how to love people, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, go do it. Well, all right then. See, he didn't tell me a list of big of things that I needed to do. He kept it simple. He said, you don't need to do a lot of things. You need to be absolutely committed to two things and do them with excellence. And that has guided me in ministry. Find the truth. The Holy Spirit of God will work within you to produce fruit of the Spirit. And you'll find courage. So we have to be committed to very few things, absolutely committed to very few things, to have courage. The third part of inner quality is this, centered on Christ. This is my favorite part. I love this part, right? Paul says this. He, when he went to Corinth, he wrote this. And it was so with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The courageous church's life must boil down to one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ is not just a good teacher, not just one good teacher among many. He is the son of God, crucified, dead, and buried, resurrected. And it's possible for churches to forget these things, as hard as, as, hard as that is to imagine. But a church is more about craft fairs and activities and basketball leagues, more than they are about missions and prayer and baptism is not really a church. The first mission trip took place in 2004. Took a bunch of kids down to Mexico um, to go serve in a poverty-stricken town of Reynosa. We served a family that had a mom and a dad, three daughters and their husbands, and about 13 children. And they were living in a landfill that they had strung together a piece of wood and metal to make something that resembled a home. And we went down there. We built a house for them in about four days. And it wasn't much. It was basically four walls and a roof. But it was better, far better than what they had. And then we left. 
So my question upon reflection of that, was that a mission trip? Well, it was a wonderful way of serving, and I'm not bashing it at all. I'm sure that they were very grateful. We were able to help out a family in need and able to provide one of the most basic necessities of life, which was shelter. But we didn't preach Christ. We never so much as mentioned him to the family. That wasn't what we were there to do, apparently. For all they knew, we were a bunch of nice people doing nice things. They may, have, they may have known that we were from a church, but no one's eternity was changed because of what we did. Here's a litmus test, church, and I, I want to tread lightly here. But if unbelievers can do everything that the church is doing, we're not a church. The church can be engaged in all kinds of amazing things, and I'm not bashing them at all. The church can be engaged in doing fatherhood classes in jails and feeding the hungry, and building structures in Honduras, and sponsoring orphans, rescuing them from poverty. We can run food pantries and pay electric bills for people and do everything, and all of those things are wonderful. But here's the truth. Unbelievers can do all of those things. If we aren't preaching Jesus Christ, we aren't a church. We're simply a bunch of nice people doing nice things. So many people think that they just simply do nice things for other people. They're doing the work of the kingdom. No, as nice as that sounds, as much as, as we hope that is true, it's not true. You'll understand that non-Christians do nice things for people. You know, right, right? I mean, just the fact that you do something nice for someone or serve someone, they don't automatically say, oh, you must be a Christian because only Christians do those things. No. <clears throat> Christians don't have the monopoly on serving and helping. <clears throat> don't think for one second that simply doing something nice for someone Will, uh, will automatically make them think of Jesus Christ or bring them to the kingdom. We cannot run the risk of thinking we're doing the work of the kingdom when we really aren't. The work of the kingdom is winning people to Jesus Christ. That's what the work of the kingdom is, period. And the rest of, we, rest of what we do is done out of love and compassion and is part of it, but that is not the work of the kingdom. Okay, everything we do must be centered on bringing more and more people among more and more peoples to Jesus Christ. And if the work we're doing isn't bringing more and more people to Jesus Christ, we aren't, we aren't doing uh, the work of the kingdom, no matter what it looks like on the outside. We have an opportunity on that, over the next three years. My good friend Rick Burdett has opened up a, uh, a mission uh, place to go rebuild houses in western Kentucky, devastated by the tornado. We have an opportunity to go serve there. Well, if we just go and rebuild houses and then come to that, go, go home, they'll just think we're a bunch of nice people. We go to serve we must preach Jesus Christ <clears throat> and him crucified, dead, and resurrected. Passionate about truth. Absolutely committed to very few things and centered on Christ. That is the platform that a courageous church stands on. Now that leads to four outward displays of courage. Okay, so if you don't have passion about truth, committed to a few things and centered on Christ, then these other four things don't happen. You guys following me here? Okay, these, these four things, what the world sees. We have to get the platform right first. The first thing, uh, uh, first characteristic, outward characteristic of a courageous church is this, restless. Philippians 3, 13 through 14, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I forget what is behind and I look toward what is ahead. Okay, that is, what is, that, that is the mark of a courageous church, restless, right? Never content with the status quo. 
never content with what's going, business as usual, constantly asking, who can we serve? Who can we reach? Who is not being reached with the gospel? Restless. Constantly asking, how can we follow Christ more thoroughly? How can we be more influential for Christ in, the, in our community and world? Last week, we hosted a funeral. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but Catalyst, we're only, a, we're, we're gonna be 14 years old next Sunday. Just letting you know, happy birthday us, yeah. But there was a church in here before us. It was the Nicholsville Presbyterian Church, okay? And we hosted a funeral here of a lady who had been a member of that church and loved this church building and, and, and everything. We, and then she, she died and she wanted her funeral here. And so we, uh, we hosted that. All the family were, as I walked in here, they had grown up in this church and, and everything. And they talked about how they grew up in this building, how they remembered this, how Saint so-and-so used to sit here and, and this kind of thing. They were wonderful people. But the church closed, you all. The reason we're here is because that church closed. They died. And people who remembered the church building with such fondness had left it decades ago. The entire concept of the church as they came back was how great things used to be. There's no talk about now and the future. And I made a mental note that this is how dying and dead churches talk. They talk about how great things used to be. They talk about church as if it was a museum and not a living organism, living and active and breathing. They had ceased being restless and become content with not reaching the lost, content with losing people, content with not doing ministry. It's a stark warning to us as we sit in this building that was occupied by a former church that died. Stark warning to what happens when churches don't live with courage, don't go to the hard places, stop winning the lost. There's a stark warning about what happens when people just remember the good old days, when everything was great, and the past is all we talk about. Catalysts, don't ever let that, our conversation revolve around what we used to do, how much better things were when so-and-so was here, or how much better things were when we didn't have to deal with this or that. That's the talk of a dead and dying church. Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press onward. Let our conversations revolve around what we need to do, what is next, what God is leading us to do next, our purpose in this world. Never ask, what can we do to make my family more comfortable? Instead, ask, what do we do, need to do to reach more and more people for Christ? Ask, what part of my life have I not, have I not surrendered to Christ yet? Remember, a lukewarm Christian is someone for whom all their spiritual victories are in the past. A lukewarm church is a church for whom all spiritual victories are in the past. And we look back, we, we say, oh, look how great things used to be. Courageous churches are restless, never content with the status quo, always looking for what God is calling them to do next. The second thing is this, energetic a courageous church is energetic, and this is the most deeply personal part of this message for me. And I hope that I don't upset anybody. But John 2, 17, Jesus said, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is passionate about his church, and we must be as well. The people who condemned and crucified Jesus, to their credit, never accused him of being boring. Instead, they saw him as too hard to control, too hard to contain. And his church should be the same way. 
One of the questions that haunts me is this. If tomorrow catalyst disappeared, would anybody but you all notice? Would the foster care agencies notice? Would the, would the jail notice? Would the people that are seeking truth and comfort and, and looking for hope in this world, would they notice that we're gone? Most people avoid the difficult places because they're messy and they're dangerous and they're difficult. The great thing about being a church that goes where angels love to tread is that there's plenty of room there. There's never any danger of running out of orphans who need protection and care. There's never any danger of running out of inmates who need the gospel. Never any danger whatsoever of running out of fatherless boys and girls who need a mentor to lead them to Jesus Christ. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. How true that is. Last statistics I saw, there are about 400,000 children in foster care in the nation. There are way more than 400,000 churches in America. If every church had one family that adopted one foster kid, the foster care system would disappear. And the fact that our church has multiple foster families and multiple children means they're out there, there are churches without a single foster parent in them. Harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. Courageous churches are energetic, you all. Always looking for opportunities to do the work of the kingdom out of our love for Jesus Christ. The difficult places of addiction, of uh, foster care, orphans, jail, where the courageous churches go. That's where we love to go because that's where angels love to tread. The difficult places of church planting, mission trips overseas, uh, out of comfort zones are where ch courageous churches go. And I want to issue a challenge to our young people. If you're in middle school or high school, college, college age, especially to our, I mean, to, to our middle age and older people too, but especially to our younger people, high schoolers, middle schoolers. Are there any entrepreneurs among you? Entrepreneurs are people that see a need, an unmet need, and they create something to fulfill that need. It takes specific skill set, an amazing amount of creativity and energy. Uh, not many are entrepreneurs, not many. Some of you are, not many. Are there any among you here? Well, I want to tell you something you may never heard. The church needs you. The church needs you. The church needs you to use your entrepreneurial energy and creativity, not to develop some luxury item to make affluent people more comfortable, but to serve the least and most neglected in the world. Personally, I'd love to see someone become an apostle to the deaf community. Deaf community is almost 95% unreached, largest unreached people group here in America. I'm not talking about starting, uh, you know, translating. I'm talking to someone who goes to and, and, and reaches the deaf as Paul reached uh, uh, people in, in the first century. I'd love to see someone sense a calling from God to go reach the deaf community. Are there any church planters, children's ministers, youth ministers among us? Are there creative leaders among us who have a passion from God to reach the lost and will dedicate your life to go to the difficult places where no one else wants to go, where the money isn't good, where the accolades aren't there, where you get nothing for your labor but trouble, hardship, people questioning you, and your life matters for the kingdom, where the work you do echoes for all eternity and will matter in 100,000 or 10,000 years. The church needs you, young entrepreneurs. The church needs you to go where angels love to tread, but people don't. And I want to talk to the parents of those entrepreneurs. You will be the biggest obstacle to your children's desire to follow that call. I can attest, and so can every other pastor, youth minister, whoever had a young person feel the call to ministry, or reach the lost, or be an entrepreneur for the kingdom, that the Christian parents are the number one discourager. 
Yes, and it upsets me. It makes me angry. When I approached my parents, telling them I was feeling a call to ministry, my dad said, well, you've chosen about the hardest thing you could do. Had they opposed me, told me it wasn't good, told me that uh, I wouldn't be able to pay my bills, etc., I might not be here today. If you were to get a thousand youth ministers in here and ask, how many of you have had teens with a dream, a goal of serving God with their lives, and their parents stop them, every hand would go up. And I cannot fathom the amount of kingdom work that's going undone right now. The number of churches that haven't been planted, the number of pulpits that are unfulfilled, the, the number of children's ministries that, are not, that, that need a, a full-time person, and that's going undone, not because young people weren't called to the kingdom, because their Christian parents discouraged them. Cannot fathom, not because of non-Christian opposition, because Christian parents who wanted their children to live in affluence and ease rather than the call that God had for them, the purpose for which God brought them into the world. If God has called you to be an entrepreneur, to be a kingdom worker, do not dare stoop to being a CEO. Young people, you're at the time of your life when you're making decisions about the future, course of your life. Use your talents, your passions, your creativity, your energy to serve God and love people that no one else loves, to care for people no one else cares for, to forsake the siren call of affluence and go where there are no rewards except eternity. Well, the road is difficult and your troubles are many. The pay is not good. But the blessing is above and beyond anything you could possibly imagine. Is there anyone in here who fits that call? I would love to talk with you more. The third thing about outward quality of courageous church. First thing was restless. Second is energetic. Third is this, determined to persevere. John 15, 20, uh, 15 18 through 20. Jesus says this to all of us in this church. If the world hates you, Keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. An elderly country preacher prayed this prayer every single morning, and I love it. Every time I read it, I smile, but it's so true. He said this, Lord, give me a backbone as big as a saw log and ribs like the large timber under the church floor. Put iron shoes on my feet and galvanized britches on my legs. Give me a rhinoceros hide for a skin and hang up a wagon load of determination in the gable end of my soul. Help me to sign a contract to fight the devil as long as I've got a tooth and then gum him until I die. I like that. One of the legends at Asbury Seminary, when we went to school, was a man named J.T. Siemens. He was a young man when he left to do mission work in India at age 19. He had come back after his first year, report to his church about what was going on, and told him, they, and the church board told him, we will not be sending you back. We found uh, better work for you to do here, or the, the, the dollars, we can use them better here, over here. And they didn't believe in his ministry, and didn't believe that he was called to go there. So they would not be financially supporting him and already assigned him to pastor a church somewhere else in America. JT at age 19 looked at the church board and simply said, you didn't call me to India. God did, so none of what you say matters. He turned and left the church building, began raising his own support. 50 years later, when he retired as a missionary, not only was his name 
on Asbury Seminary's building, he had personally baptized more than half a million people into Jesus Christ in India. The courageous leader knows well the hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Courageous church is perfectly fine with failure. We're going to experience failure. That's perfectly fine. We fail at more things we succeed around here. That's part of the game. Failure isn't final. Like Thomas Edison said, I didn't fail. I just figured out 99 ways that didn't work. It's an easy way to never fail at anything, just never do anything. And unfortunately, far too many of us are so afraid of failure that we are afraid to persevere. Well, a courageous church is determined to persevere. Setbacks are temporary. Failure is not final. Fourth thing is this. This is my favorite one. Optimistic. Optimistic. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 says this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine according to his power that is a work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ all throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Courageous churches are incredible optimists. Incredible optimists. They have to be. They are churches that believe that God works everything to the good of those who love and obey him. There are churches who believe that this is the day the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. One of the things that upsets me about churches and Christians, I'm a, I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian, so I'm allowed to, allowed to crit, be critical where things are critical. Many th- one of the things that upsets me is their pessimism about life. Many churches and Christians have this fatalistic worldview, and you've probably heard it. Well, the Bible says the end times things will be awful. And they just kind of wallow in it. It's kind of the fatalism that, that, that uh, things are just going from bad to worse. Things are, the whole country is just going downhill. That's all you ever hear. You're around these people. Let me tell you something, church. Things have always been awful. They've always been awful. There's never been a time, see if you can find a place in history, where people looked around and said, you know what, things are pretty good. I like this. This is as good as it gets. We don't have any problems. There's never been that time. Don't ever believe that. One of the reasons the pilgrims left England to come to America was their belief that things were so bad in England that God's judgment was coming to to England and God's aim wasn't very good. He was going to go, and they were going to get hit too. That's, That's one of the reasons they came here, because society was so awful. I found this the other day. Let me read this to you. This is great. Uh, this, is what I, 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 this is what some author wrote. It looks like the world is breaking up. Civilization seems to be rocking. The whole social order is trembling. Economic structures are giving way. And worse than all else besides, our moral foundations are being dynamited. Everywhere we find unrest, confusion, even turmoil. A man is not a pessimist who is alarmed today because of what he sees. One writer uses the word collapse to describe the present-day world situation. And, and people are like, man, that sounds like today. That was written in 1934 by a group called Fundamental Truth Publishers. 1934. And I see the church almost reveling in this pessimism because we think it makes us sound moral and prophetic, but it doesn't. Pessimism doesn't inspire anyone. How about we invite the lost to our church? Hey, lost people, come into our church. Let us sit around and talk about how awful everything is. 
Is that what we're going to do? Come be a Christian and find out why everything's awful and terrible and how things just ain't as good as they used to be. I can see the lost people saying, well, I get that out in the world. If that's what, mean, if that's what Jesus Christ means, if that's what it means to have Jesus Christ, I don't want what you've got. Pessimism, church, not a place. There's no place in the church for it. The thing is, we have the words of life, church. We have the words of life. We believe that God works all things to the good of those who love him and obey. We have eternal life in our future. We've already, won the, we've already won the lottery, guys. We've won the spiritual lottery. We cannot lose. The only thing that can happen to you in this world is you die and you go to heaven. That's the worst thing that will happen to you. So why in the world are we so pessimistic? We have the Holy Spirit of God within us that is doing amazing things in this world. Jesus may be returning soon. He may be, and, and he, will, he will come back when he, when he is ready. That doesn't have anything to do with us. We have work to do. We have courage, and we have dangerous places that need the gospel and need to see Christian courage before Jesus returns again. So why in the world are we so pessimistic? We should be the most optimistic people in the world. Optimism inspires courage. Let's remove pessimism and fatalism from our lives, people. It's not any place, that's inappropriate for God's holy people. Courage flows from the optimism that God is working and wins in the end. And I think you can probably tell whether a church is optimistic or not by what it is doing in the world. Are they circling their wagons talking about the good old days? Or are they actively engaged in reaching people with the gospel because they know the Holy Spirit is, uh, has gone ahead of them and we're going to rack up some wins for the kingdom? That's the kind of church I want to be at. God is good all the time. And he, has, he gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. 1 Peter 3.15 writes this. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Well, a pessimist doesn't have any hope. A church full of pessimism will not have any hope whatsoever. And I wonder how many people aren't coming to our churches and asking for the reason of a hope because we have not demonstrated any hope at all. Let's rid ourselves of pessimism and fatalism. And let's look at the, and let's be marked by optimism. We have the Holy Spirit of God within us. Our future is set. Eternity is guaranteed. So what are we afraid of? Man, we've already won the lottery. We just haven't collected the winnings yet. I want to invite the band to come on back up. When it comes to courage, there's something that uh, w went around in my, uh, my college days. I was part of FCA, and they came out with a statement that uh, was read in, in college FCAs back then. And I kept a copy, and I keep it in my files, and I, I, I read it. I've... I've shared it with you before, but I'm going to do it again, because this is what we as a church need to be marked by. This is a, a writing that's about 20-something years old, 25 years old, 30 years old, and it goes like this. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. 
I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, uh, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane walking, intensity giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence, learn by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, shut up until I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes again. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That is the motto of a courageous church.